Praise the Lord, right? Amen. Do a little housekeeping here and get rid of these glasses. You know, it is a little bit different. Uh, I can't see the can't see the clock up there, so I'll take my watch off. So we're not here at twelve thirty, and but it's good that I'm back this far without my glasses because if all of you are giving me a look like we need to finish, I won't see it. So that's really good. I want to be truly honest with everyone today um, in light of last week and what we were told about the, the search that the, that the board made and Pastor Mike made for a, an assistant pastor. Let me tell you who you voted on yesterday and his wife. You voted on two completely broken people. I promise you that. And that's a very good thing. And so if you pray for Melissa and I, and I know you will, and you pray for Mike and Ruth, and you pray for the elders and their families, pray that we're very broken people and that we're in need of a God, as we all are, right? And also pray that we're broken by the things that God sees, the things that God hears, and the things that break God's heart. Pray that your leadership here at Turkey Run is broken about those things as well. So... That's all I'm going to say on that subject. So, praise the Lord. If you uh, will please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. So, I love Pastor Mike because he likes to challenge me at times. And so, I found out not too long ago I was going to be speaking today. And I'm like, and and Mike knew I was going to be in Michigan all week. So, I actually wrote this sermon uh in the, in the Homewood Suites in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So that's where this was, the home of Reformed theology in America, pretty much. So anyway, we won't get into our conversations about uh, Calvinists and Lutherans and, and Anabaptists as we did in, in Sunday school. But there's something that really stands out. The title of today's sermon, if you look at your bulletin, is Slaves, Trials, and Faith. Okay. In modern America today, if you were to say that, if I was walking on the streets of any city, and I were to talk about slaves, the red flags go up, there's going to be a lot of conversation because of a lot of things that are going on in our culture today. And so at the outset of this message, I want to say that slavery, human trafficking, or anything even remotely like that is an abomination before the, God, the, the, before the eyes of God, and it should break our heart as well when we see slavery in any form or fashion in our world today. However, as we're going to see in this first eight verses of, uh, of, of chapter 1 in James, it's going to talk about slavery. And so uh, before we, we jump into that, I was really, really moved a little bit. And, and Annabelle, thank you. You said something in Sunday school, and she just kind of hunkered down there. Uh-oh. She said something in Sunday school about Queen Esther. And thank you, Marvin, for teaching this morning. She said that Queen Esther was a slave. And I thought about it, and I thought about my studies this week and preparing for this message, and you know, Annabelle's right. So let me ask you this question, rhetorical. I don't need any answers or anything like that. Could Queen Esther on a whim, could she have said, you know, I want to go over to Dairy Queen and get a Frosty, right? I want to get a hot dog at Dairy Queen. Could she have just walked out of the palace and did what she wanted to do? No. She wanted to go take a stroll along the river, no, or if she could, she had to have a, let's say, a bodyguard or a eunuch by her side at all times. And so was she a slave? 
Yes. Annabelle went a step further and said, she's a sexual slave too. Yet think about this for a moment. The king, Xerxes, told her in, in the last chapter that we studied this morning, he said, I'll give you any request up to half of my kingdom. Yet she was still a slave, yet she could have up to half of that kingdom, one of the great world powers at that time. And so as we talk about slavery today, as we talk about trials, and as we talk about faith, let's think of Queen Esther a little bit as well as we look at our own condition and as we look at the human condition. So let me, you all are there, but I got to get there. So what we're going to do as we go through this, uh, we will take a look at some other verses outside of James. Save time, and you don't have to go flipping uh, any verses that are outside of James. I'll just throw them on the screen so you don't have to go digging around or anything like that. But let's start in James 1.1. I guess, first of all, we need to do James some credit. Who is the James who wrote this book? Okay, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So keep that in your mind as we read verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And so with that, I say greetings to all of you in the name of the Lord Jesus, to the saints at the church at Turkey Run. Back to James, a bondservant. Okay, I'm going to pick on somebody today. I was actually praying on who to pick on in Grand Rapids, and Lincoln came to my mind. Lincoln, I can't pick on myself because I don't have any siblings. I'm an only child. My wife is an only child. And so we don't have this experience that pretty much most of you have. So anybody in here a lonely? Oh, lonely. <laughs> kind of. Anybody else in here an, an only child? Thanks, EJ. Caleb, thank you. Okay. You all know where I'm coming from, but the rest of you, th think about this. Let's think of Lincoln. Lincoln is the youngest son in his family. Now, I don't know if James was the youngest son in his family. Okay, I'm not worried about, not concerned about that part. But who was, who, think of any of Lincoln's older brothers. There's one there, there's one there, there's one over there, right? Could Lincoln have said this? Verse 1, Lincoln, a bondservant of Stuart. I don't think that would happen. Am I right, Lincoln? Yeah, you can nod. It's okay, it's okay. What happened in James's life that he could actually say, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Wow. That's what we're going to look at today. Part, there's three parts. That's one of the things we're going to look like. So here's the question. What is a bondservant? Well, a bondservant is a slave. Okay. So James said, James, a slave of God that would have been, I guess that would have been okay. That wouldn't have upset the family Thanksgiving meetings, you know, in the, in the old country, right? However, not just of God, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. So historically, let's look at slavery. This is a high-level view. Let's look at the, 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 the Roman world. Typically, you had two types of slaves, or there were many types, and I know, and I pray, I pray that uh, if, if I'm off on this, please let me know after service. Um, Derek, I know you will, so please. Anytime I talk about Rome, and I expect that I need that. I need to be challenged. Um, it's somebody who would voluntarily serve others. That's one part. But for the most part, it was most likely a permanent situation. Um, there were slaves who were able to buy their freedom. 
And I'm sure that was not an easy thing to do. Uh, so they were pretty much slaves or servants. We'll call them servants for life. Okay, um, they were actually considered personal property of the slave of the slave owner. So it was a, more of a chattel relationship than it was uh, as equals. Okay, let's flip over to the Hebrew world, um, and we're going to look at indentured servants and bond servants. James said he was a bond servant. He didn't say he was an indentured servant. Uh, in the Hebrew world, an indentured servant, they, they could become a bondservant voluntarily. If they did, they were a bondservant for life. And uh, some may probably correct me on this, but I think there was a ceremony where they would like take an awl and on their lobe, they would punch that. I thought it was in a doorway, or I couldn't remember exactly when I was looking at that. But that was kind of a ceremony to say that that person was bound to that house and that family for life, but it wasn't so much a chattel situation. It was a, it was a, it was a relationship out of love and care and concern for, for both parties. Now we flip over to the more controversial topic in our modern world. Let's look at the slavery and the, coloniz the colonization of North America. That's something we know. It gets thrown in our face all the time. It happened. It was ugly. It was brutal. It was wrong. Praise God. It was, it was corrected. It was corrected with a lot of people's blood in the 1860s. Um, that period of time, so I want to look at pre-Africans being sold in, so I want to look at slavery prior to Africans coming into the continent. And typically you had Europeans, let's say younger folks, and um, they could not afford the fare. They could not afford for passage from the old world to the new world. So what did they do? Um, they basically signed away their life for a number of years, I think seven, I could be wrong on that. And um, they would uh, be servants to whomever or whatever company, and then they would work off that debt, and then they would earn their freedom, and then they were free to do what they would do. It was more of an indentured servitude. Um, now, also the servant, they could decide to do, they could sign another term, another contract to go further and further and further. And so that's kind of the colonization of North America prior to, and then we know the, the, the history of African Americans, they were just sold and brought, and they were chattel, they were property, they had no rights, they had nothing, which is horrible. Okay. So it raises the question again. James said he was a bondservant. So James knew the personal side of Jesus. He would have saw Jesus in everyday let's say carpentry, every, everyday stuff. Now, I, I'm not going to go back and quote it, but does anybody remember Jesus' teaching, or, or he's, he's, I can't remember what exactly he's doing, he's interacting with people, brothers and sisters, people coming to, to him, and they said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting on you. Anybody remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm going to summarize it. Uh, you know, all of you, you're my, you're, my, you're my mother and you're my brothers. How do you think Mary and the, and the boys outside felt? Lincoln, how would you feel? Stuart's like, no, no, that's my brother over there. Forget about Lincoln. Yeah, I think that would hurt. Okay? That's just me talking. Who doesn't have a brother? Okay. By the way, all of you are my brothers and sisters, so you get me too. So what is a bond servant? In Romans 6, 16 through 18, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, 
You are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's a question. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So, looking at modern-day slavery, are there still slaves today? Yes. You can go to countries all over the world and see modern-day slavery that's just as evil and brutal as we read about in the Bible or we heard about even in American, early American history. But are we to be slaves? What do we get out of Romans 6, 16 to 18? We're slaves to one thing. Or we're, everybody in this sanctuary is a slave. I'm a slave. Either I'm a slave to sin or I'm a slave to righteousness. The good news is that we get to choose. I say we choose righteousness. It's just like that Joshua, choose life, choose death. Hey, by the way, let me help you. Just go ahead and choose the life. All right? Romans 6.22, a couple verses later. But now that you have been set free from sin and, and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So we talked about we're slaves to something. We're a slave to sin or we're a slave to righteousness. But did you know that actually there's a benefit to being a slave? It's right there. You've been set free from sin. So you, we were once, I'll use back and forth here, we were once slaves to sin. But we've been set free, we're over here now, and now we're a slave to righteousness. And there's a benefit from moving from sin to righteousness. And what is that benefit? It leads to holiness. And what's the result of that leading to holiness? Eternal life. So we go back to the Hebrew tradition. We go from the indentured servant. So what were we indentured to? Sin and Satan. Every person born into the world, including the little baby that was just born two minutes ago at the hospital in Columbus, maybe. Somebody's going to be born today in Columbus, I guarantee you that. They were born on this side. They were born to sin. And we pray that eventually they'll change their allegiance and they'll go over there and become a slave to righteousness. Now think about parading down the streets of Columbus and saying, we all need to be slaves. <laughs> That's probably not going to go over very well. And I don't think they'll give us time to do the context. But anyway, we literally change our allegiance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And what is the term of our allegiance? How long? Remember the indentured servant in the Hebrew world to the bond servant? It was for life. And that's what happens to us. Keep this in our minds as we look at verse 2. So let's go to verse 2. I'm not going to put it out on the board. You have to look at your Bibles for that. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I'm guilty at times. I think I did this with Mike Roy last week. And I, Mike, I, I drove home and I thought, oh, I was a little too flippant with what I said. We, Mike, Mike and I were talking over here uh, after service last week and I made a comment, count it all joy. And I thought, ah, this is like telling somebody, you know, they're falling in the pit and walking by and say, have faith, brother, and just keep on walking. And I felt really bad about that, Mike. That I said, just count it all joy. There's got to be context to counting that, count it, to be joyful in trials. And that's what we're going to look at here for a second. Does count it all joy sound fun? Outside of trials. Does it sound fun? Yeah, fun is, joy is great. It's better than happiness. Happiness is a feeling that comes and joy, goes. Joy should be a condition in our life. But then trials come. And is count it all joy happy then? Or is it joyful then? No, it's a little bit harder. It's not fun. It doesn't sound joyous. So let's look at Matthew 5, 10 through 12. The words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Not easy. Not easy at all. But if we can go back to Romans 6.22, I won't go back in the screens, but let's say we put our glasses on. okay? And we're going to put the lens of Romans 6.22. So when I look through these lens, I'm going to see whatever I see, it's in light of Romans 6.22. Do that for a second. We know that being a slave to righteousness leads to benefits. Those benefits are holiness that lead to eternal life. That's very counterintuitive to, the, to our modern worldview, modern perspective. But from a faith perspective, that is fact and it's truth. And we have to rest in that. And we're going to talk about rest here in a moment. But we have to rest in that fact. So what are the benefits of falling, joyfully falling, into various trials? And why should we be joyful? Okay, we're going to open up our Greek handbook here. The Greek word, I'm going to look at the word fall. Because if you see that, my brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when? When you fall. This is New King James when you fall into various trials. We're going to look at the Greek word, hard to pronounce, peripipto. And what it means, it doesn't mean if I'm just walking along in the sidewalk and sometimes the sidewalk has a crack in it and the little part's raised and I'm too busy, I don't have a cell phone here, let's say this way, and I'm looking at my cell phone and like everybody, they'd probably walk into a ditch, wouldn't even know it, and boop, I'd fall down. That's not what this fall means, Okay. This fall is totally different. This fall, peripipto, means you fall as, and you're encompassed and you're surrounded by what you fall into. The best example I can think of is falling into a pit. Or out in West Texas, we used to live in Texas, not in West Texas, but you always hear of a kid falling into an old well and he or she goes way down. And there's no way they're getting out unless somebody get something down there to get them out because the hole is probably only about this big. 
Okay, but they're down in the hole. It's dark. They can barely see light at the very top, and they're encompassed and surrounded. Let me ask all of you a question. When you encounter various trials, what kind of trials are they? Are they the ones that encompass you and surround you and just take your breath away? Or are they just easy stuff that just bounces off of you and, you know, flowery beds of ease? The Christian life you were promised by the word faith, folks, stuff like that. Been there, done that, trust me. Which one? I'd venture to say the, the, the former, not the latter. Okay? So I'd say that that's closer to what the trials look like in our own lives. So let's go ahead and take a look at somebody who, who had to deal with something like that. Genesis 37, uh, verses 23 and 24. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his, uh, had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, uh, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Some uh, translations, I think, use the term cistern. So I have a house that was built in Lancaster. I have a house that was built around 1895 to 1899. There are two cisterns in my backyard. They're not used. They're plugged up and, and all that. I haven't lifted, I could go over there and lift up the lid and see how deep it is. I don't, I'm, I don't want to do that. I don't know what crazy things are going to come out of there. Uh, but uh, cisterns can be big, but it's a pit. I know King James, New King James uses the word pit. Could Joseph have gotten out of the pit by himself? I would say no. Okay. So, again, count it all joy when you fall into various trials or pits. Some of those trials are self-inflicted. And that's just us being stupid. Let's be honest. But some of those trials are not self-inflicted. They're, 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 they're devised by other means. People, the enemy, situations, things like that. Let's look at another example in the Old Testament. Daniel 16, 16 and 17. So the king gave command, and they brought Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel, or saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Could Daniel have gotten out of the pit on his own? Even if Daniel had the strength to move that stone, could he have gotten out? I'll make the assumption there were probably guards there too. But the king, right, his ring, he sealed that. And the lords, they sealed that. Nobody could come save Daniel. Because if they had come and saved Daniel, let's say in the middle of the night somebody came and broke that and rolled it away and off they go, people are going to die. Because they went against the king's rule, the king's decision. The king's edict. There was only one way Daniel was going to make it through that, and that was by going through the pit, in the pit, overnight in the pit. We don't know Daniel's demeanor when he was in the pit. We don't know. You see the, the kids' Bible books. You know, he's laying on the, the lion's chest and <laughs> this crazy stuff. We don't know if he hunkered in a corner. We don't know if he went up and petted him. We don't know. But we know one thing. He came out the next day. We know that, and so will we. But how will we get through the various trials? And that's what we're going to look at. So we have to have confidence 
as we're surrounded by these various trials, which brings us to verse 3. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Hopefully this isn't controversial. It won't be with this crowd. The testing of our faith is the work of God in our life. Why do we hate it so much? Now, I'm not saying when testing comes my way that I run to it and embrace it. Testing my friend, trials my friend. No, probably not. But it should drive us to a posture, and and we'll get into that here in just a moment. But the testing of our faith is the work of God. Because what happens when we're tested? Well, we grow. And I think it's, I'm using the example of like uh, lifting weights. And if we lift weights, I'm not a weightlifter, as you can tell. Um, But if we lift weights, this starts to say we're doing these, and this starts to grow. But what happens in the process? There's a little bit of pain, right? There's a little bit of uh, aches and things like that. People get injured lifting weights, doing working out, running, doing whatever they do. What's that term? No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. That is what testing does in our lives. So as we're being tested, we need to rest. And again, we're going to get to that word again. We need to rest in the assurance that God is using these tests for our benefit. And remember Romans, remember we still have the lens of Romans 6.22 in our glasses. Is that that testing, that there is a benefit to it and it leads to holiness? Or, you know, holiness that leads to eternal life. This is not easy to do, is it? It's not easy at all. But the byproduct of the test is patience. So as we go through the test, we need to go through it looking at the end game that there's patience on the other side of that test. So we mentioned patience. That's a good segue to verse 4. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect. That makes people cringe. That word is mature or complete. And complete, lacking nothing. I love, and this is New King James, the first three words, kick out the first word. It's but let patience. So let's just focus on words two and three. Let patience. In studying for this, when I read that, I read surrender. Let patience. And how hard is it to surrender through a testing, through a a, a difficult period in our life or in in our walk with the Lord? Let patience surrender. We must trust God and surrender ourselves to his work. Again, what is the intended result of this perfect work in our surrender? That we may be perfect or that we may be complete, that we may be mature, lacking nothing. Sounds kind of easy as I read it, right? But it's extremely difficult. Um, Because as humans, show of hands, this is the real deal, show of hands. How many of you here like change and discomfort? I didn't raise my hand. No. But I think in the spirit realm, that's counterintuitive to the work of God. It's, I know I'm saying something that's hard, but we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it. doesn't mean we pray for it to happen, but we need to embrace it when it comes into our life because there's something better on the other side of it. And I thought of this too. When it comes our way, 
And I'm a firm believer in what I'm going to say. Either you're coming out of a testing period in your life, or you're going, you're about ready to go into a pet testing period in your life, or you're smack dab in the middle of a midst of a testing period right now. I think I summed up everybody in this sanctuary, definitely including me. And through that process, our flesh, our flesh, our flesh rises up and it says something like, you know, I really thought the Christian life would be easier than this. Or I like this one. Hey, where's that yoke is easy part? Where's that burden is light part? It is. Because on the other side, it's easier. It's lighter. I don't have this on the screen. and Please don't turn here. This is, a, this is kind of a, a crass, uh, shameless attempt to get people to come to Sunday school, but we're going to be finishing up Esther here shortly, and then we're going to jump into the book of Revelation. And so I was thinking about the seven churches, and that's in Revelation. It's mentioned in the latter part of chapter 1, but chapter 2 deals with the seven churches. But I just want to read something really quick. I'm not reading directly from it, but I'm summarizing. It says, when it talks to the seven churches, to the one who is victorious, because Let's, I'm going to use the church at Ephesus as an example. It'll say, I know your deeds, duh, 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 but I have something against you, and it goes through that. But then at the very end of that, it says, to the one who is victorious. And listen to this. Ephesus. To the one who is victorious, they have the right to eat of the tree of life. Victorious about what? Victorious about maybe what we're reading in James chapter 1. Victorious about making it to the end of our walk that he's ordained for us. In Smyrna, it was to the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. To Pergamon, to, to the one who is victorious can partake of hidden manna and they'll get a white stone with a new name, Thyatira. The one who is victorious will have authority over the nations and the morning star, Sardis. They'll have their name in the book of life. They'll be dressed in white, and their names will be acknowledged. Acknowledged before God, actually. Philadelphia. To the ones victorious, they'll be made a pillar in the temple. And lastly, the church that most people like to beat up on a little bit, but Laodicea. But listen to this one. To the one who's victorious, talking to the church that was lukewarm, that he actually said that he would spew them out of his mouth. To the one who is victorious, they will have the right to sit with Christ on his throne. All of these promises apply to the church at Turkey Run as well. And all of us. So all of this, in looking at these churches, this is what awaits those who let patience have its perfect work and are victorious. Verse 5, and we've got to pick up the pace here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. It sounds simple. Does anyone in here lack wisdom? I'm going to raise my hand. Okay. Ask. Simple, right? Not, not but practicality? Difficult. So what we're going to talk about is how do we ask? What type of posture? It's more comforting to ask from a position of rest in God's perfect work looking through the lens of Romans 6.22, uh, of developing our patience? Or is it more comfortable, is it more comforting to ask from a posture of desperation? 
And I think at times in my life, when I've run up to things like that, I've asked, but oh God, please. It's more like desperation than it is in a position of confidence that he's working something in my life. So when I say rest, I'm not talking about sleeping or lack of activity. I'm talking about a calmness of spirit and a surrender type of rest. And going back to Marvin and, and talking about when he first opened up Sunday school, talking about the Anabaptists, uh, our, our, our relatives, they had a term, an old Anabaptist term, and it was called glassenheit. We're not going to go into glassenheit, but I will talk about one English word that sums it up. It's called yielding. And that's what we need to do. We need to yield to his work in our lives, even though it's not pleasant, even though it's difficult. What happens when we do this? It says that God gives to us liberally and without reproach. He doesn't chide us. He doesn't taunt us. He doesn't scorn us. And he gives liberally. Liberally, bountifully. So what is our mindset? Where is our heart? And what is our spiritual posture? It really matters. Leads us to verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Okay, you lack wisdom, ask. How do we ask? We ask in faith. That's verse 6. Again, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's our spiritual posture. And we don't have time to turn to it. Matthew 8, 5 through 13, I'll just say it this way. The centurion's faith. If you remember the story, actual event, um, the centurion's um, um, was it his daughter, I believe? Daughter was dying and goes to Jesus and pretty much says, hey, come and, and all that. And, and I think where I really get the mental picture is in the, in the movie The Chosen is that he talks to him and he goes, well, I'll come to your house. He goes, you don't have to come to my house. You just say the word. And what I like is that actor, how he portrayed, he, the actor playing Jesus, he portrayed it, the astonishment on his face about here's a guy, he's not even a, a Hebrew, not even a Jew, he's a, he's a Roman centurion. Just say, just say the word and it'll be done. Wow, that's the posture. That's asking in faith. Another one is in Matthew 14, right around verse 22 to 31. Jesus is walking on the water. The disciples, what, they're probably asleep on the boat or there's just a lot going on. It's, it's, it's crazy, storming, tumult, all that. And, uh, they see Jesus and they just lose it. It's a ghost. We don't, they, don't know, they don't know what it is. And then Jesus is like, it's me. I'm, I'm very paraphrasing this because we, you know, we can't put it up here. It's me. Relax, guys. Chill out. It's cool. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then let me, to come, let me come to you. What was that posture? Peter had guts. I love that about him. But if it's you, I'm not picking on him, but Jesus just said the verse before, it's Jesus. If it's you, let me come. I'm not going to bash on Peter. Guess what? He walked on water for a little bit. He did. So, but look at posture. So who's the doubter? The doubter is like the wave on the sea, driven and tossed in the wind. If anybody's ever been to the beach or the ocean during a storm, it's crazy. It's not that set swell. When I go to the beach, I love to, we love to get in the water, and if I can get a board, we'll attempt at surfing and stuff like that. And, you know, that swell, it's predictable. It comes every so many seconds or whatever and so high. But 
it's going, the water's going all different directions. It's crazy and all that. Um, so it's total chaos and total turmoil. Back to the posture. Where are our souls? Are our souls in that galassenheit, that yielded state of surrender to the Romans 6.22 lenses of rest? Or are we just a total act of desperation, grasping for straws, pleading with God? Which one are we? And lastly, verse 7 and 8. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In my life and in my Christian walk, I can remember times of being extremely double-minded. And I can remember times of being double-minded, of being extremely confused about maybe the will of God in, our, in my life, in my family's life, etc. We've all been there. But we see here, those who are double-minded, they shouldn't expect anything, and they'll remain unstable. So kind of our call to action today is to not be double-minded. Um, so in conclusion, we need to have rest in our status as slaves. I cannot say this enough. It's not flippant. Rest in our slavery. We're slaves to righteousness. We're not slaves to wrath. We're not slaves to destruction. We once were, but we're not anymore. Our master, our owner, is good and he's compassionate. But let's never forget our former master. He was bad. He's evil, and he's a tormentor. He tormented us, and he torments people today that we see on a daily basis. We have a job to do, and that job is to help people escape that evil master. We have to give up our allegiance to the former master and his kingdom, and we're now citizens of a new kingdom with a master who's the lover of our souls. We talked about the Anabaptist earlier, and what we talked about that Marvin had talked about was, I like that word, simplicity. That they, they sought to worship God. They sought to live their lives in simplicity without the complexity of getting bogged down in tons of doctrine and theology. There's some error in that. And there's also some brilliant truths in that as well. Um, but I pray that, that we embrace this today to embrace our slavery as slaves to righteousness. So what we're going to do is let's pray, and then uh, after we pray, Marvin will lead us in the doxology, and then you're dismissed after the doxology. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for your blessings, your many, many blessings. Lord, we thank you that you have taken us from sin and death and being slaves to sin, slaves to destruction, slaves to turmoil, slaves to confusion, slaves to this world, this world system, and even allegiance to this world. And Lord, you've brought us into a kingdom where, where we're slaves to righteousness, slaves to faithfulness. Lord, and as a body, we're slaves to each other, to be loving servants, to care about uh, others in this body more than ourselves, 
So Lord, help us to live that in all application today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Marvin, if you could lead us.